Figarun ke imis tusuton ehontes perikimenon imin nefos marturon, okon opothemeni panta ketin efarisaten amartian di upomenis trechon, ton prokimenon imin agona, aforontes intontis pisteos archigon keteliotton, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The reading of the word from Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children, my child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be back. Uh, it's good to see you all again, both you that are here uh, in our auditorium and, and you that are following us online. It's, it's good to be here. I've, I've had a, a five-week break, uh, which is incredibly generous, and I'm grateful to our elders for providing that for me and my family. If you, if you don't know, uh, my family welcomed our third son. And I'm really grateful for, for Randy and for Jerry and Mike for being willing to step in. That means a lot to me. And our, our third son, his name is, is Deacon James Hughes. And as Chris Riley said, at least there will be one deacon here at Highland. And I'm happy to be a part of that. I'm happy to be a part of that. Um, as you know, uh, and as was mentioned earlier, this has been a, an interesting week. Uh, election weeks are always fascinating, and this one especially so, just because of how long and drawn out it was. And I wasn't sure when I wrote this sermon um, who exactly was going to be our next president. And you've heard me say in the past that our allegiance is not to the donkey or to the elephant, but to the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And as Mike said last week, our unity isn't found in the fact that we agree. Our unity must be based in something much more deep and the love that Jesus Christ has for one of us. But I want to share with you a thought about how to navigate the next couple of weeks. Um, in, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 29, there's uh, a quote that I guarantee you if you went to, to Lifeway or Mardell's, you would find some Christian art a little plaque or a t-shirt or a poster that has this quote on it. It's the quote that you give to seniors as they're going off into college 
And it's probably one of the most taken out of context quotes in the entire Old Testament. It goes something like, For the know I, the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. But when you read the chapter that that's contained in, you realize it's a letter that Jeremiah is writing to the elders of Israel, to the leaders of Israel, as the leaders of Israel are being sent to exile in Babylon. They're being sent away from the promise of God. They're being sent towards slavery. Yet I know the promise I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for a hope and a future. I think the most striking verse in that chapter is not the one that shows up on bumper stickers all the time, but one that comes early where Jeremiah urges the leaders to pray for the city you find yourself in. Because if it goes well with them, it'll go well with you. Can you imagine that? Pray for the Babylonians that have captured you and taken you into exile. Because if it goes well for them, it'll go well for you. So you may have found yourself this week pleased by the results of the election. You're happy that uh, President-elect Biden will be the next president of the United States. Just remember that 70% of this town does not agree with you. Or you may find yourself in uh, the major minority of America that is kind of frustrated about the outcome of the election. Just remember that the majority of our country chose and vote for who they chose. Either way, pray for the place that you found yourself in. Because if it goes well for them, it'll go well for us. And I want to encourage you as you see those yard signs coming down over the next week or so, what you are called to be. We are called to be people that embody love, joy, peace, forbearance, gentleness, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's who we are called to be in stressful times, in, in emotional times, in times that feel like suffering. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for uh, this place. Father, I'm grateful for this chance to be gathered again and to see my family again. And Father, I, I pray that during this time and in this moment, you will give us ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are open to your word. And Father, I, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching so that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. Let your spirit fall on us again. Let us be changed by the power of your word. And it's in your son's name that we pray. And the church says, amen. All right, so it's, it's striking to me that I come back to, to, to preach on the, uh, the Sunday that we're going to talk about familial discipline, me being a brand new father for the third time. Uh, I want us to think about these statements and just try to fill in the blank if you can do it. Maybe you've heard this before or maybe you've, You've said this before. Quit crying or I will give you something to cry about. How many of you heard that growing up? 
in the back seat of your station wagon. You were tired and you were hungry. You were ready to be home or wherever it was that you were going to go. And you were crying and somebody said that from the front seat. You better quit crying. I'll pull this car over and then you'll have something to cry about. Think about that for just a minute. Maybe you've said that. And, uh, you know, there are a ton of things that my father said to me I never thought would come out of my mouth, but then they did, and here we are. So I have a lot of mercy for my parents now that I realize how hard it is to parenting. Um, but this one, this one's a little more insidious. It's only because I love you that I hurt you. These are problematic statements. The first statement, I'll give you something to cry about, is problematic because it ignores the emotional and mental or physical state of the person that you're talking to. This child is already bothered about something, and what I'm interested in as a parent, if I say those words, is not so much addressing those emotional, mental, spiritual, or physical needs, but as getting a kind of behavior that I need to get, which is, I need you to really stop crying. The second is even more insidious, and I still wrestle with that language. I love you. It's because I love you that I hurt you. I have really mixed feelings about kind of the Western understanding of discipline as a father. And the further I get into parenting, and some of you are way ahead of me on this, the more um, uh, scary it feels to me. For instance, my, my second-born, Micah, I was asking him to do something, and he wouldn't do it. He didn't want to do it. He just said no. And then his older brother, Elliot, came along and said, hey, let's do it. The exact same thing. Micah goes bounding off with his older brother. And I realized in that moment, I have very little control. And the four-year-old has a lot. And I'm grateful that he hasn't figured out exactly how much control he has over his siblings. This is alarming. Raising kids is hard. On the one hand, you make all of your mistakes on your firstborn. It's kind of like your starter house. I don't know if you had your starter house, the first house you moved into, and you began doing all the home repair at yourself. There is a house in Abilene that if it burns down from an electrical fire, I am almost certain it's my fault because I was learning how to do all that stuff in that very first house. It's kind of like when you play that video game and you, it's one of those simulations, it gets out of control, and you just go up to the menu and you press restart. For me, that's kind of what second and third kid is. That's just a chance to restart, you know, give it another shot. On the other hand, you put a lot of effort in your first one because Elliot listens, Micah listens a lot more to Elliot than he does to me. And by the second and the third kid, you kind of want to do it again, but you're just so exhausted, you just let them do anything. They just kind of run feral. <laughs> by the way, at the park, I heard a large and sharp amen from one person that was letting their children play on the playground. No judgment, it just confirms my point. On the one hand, we see the logical conclusion of using physical violence as a discipline tool. That is, if you raise someone using physical violence, the child grows up thinking authority belongs to the one that can hit the hardest or hurt the most. And they grow up into a system that they learn to be violent, mean, to lie and cheat, to strike first to survive. On the other end of that spectrum is, is, is the option of, to engage in no discipline at all. 
A child who is spoiled and just never hears no is just as dangerous as a child that is allowed to run feral. Both of these strategies have terrible outcomes. And it's hard to imagine a parent who engages in these actually cares about their child at all. I think one of the issues that we're struggling with is that the West confuses discipline with punishment. We think that discipline means we punish our children. But I think God points us to a different path. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline discipline is loving and kind correction. It's course adjustment. And the task of a good parent is to help you learn how to understand, both emotionally, uh, to comprehend mentally, how to navigate the world in the best paths. This is the task that God has called us to do. And as we read Hebrews, we realize this is the task that God himself does for us. Gentle course correction, kind course correction that teaches us how to love the good and hate the evil. Teaches us how to make wise choices and mature choices about what we do with our lives. I had this moment. Uh, the difference between me in the seventh grade and the difference between me in the eighth grade is night and day. My braces came off. I got contacts. I was a handsome young man in the eighth grade, not in the seventh grade. I remember clearly a moment. I was in my optometrist's office, and he was teaching me how to put in contacts for the first time. And this is a very bizarre thing if you think about putting in contacts because you are trying to dissuade your body of instincts that it has learned from the very first day that you were born. That is, when you put your finger into your eye, you blink. That's a natural phenomenon, and no normal person would try to keep their eye open as an object is approaching it. But that's what my optometrist was teaching me to do, not to blink. It took me an hour to put in my first contact. And he sat there patiently saying, no, that's not it, let's try again. Put the contact back on my finger and let me try again. Over and over and over. And looking back at that time, thinking about it now, it is strange for me to think about how I spent an hour of that man's life as he gently and kindly taught me the best way. Course corrected my behavior taught me mental models to think about the right way to go forward. But it's impossible to miss the violence in this text. And your struggle against sin, you have not yet shed blood. And those two words about struggle uh, in that sentence, it it points to kind of a Greco-Roman boxing match. It was a fight where two people would just sit there and hit each other until one of them passed out or gave up. As Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Discipline is learning how when you get punched to do the right thing. I love what Mike said last night or last week about what it feels like to run into the stadium. And that by faith chapter that happens before this one sets up that beautiful image of all the heroes in the past who are standing in the stands and cheering us on as we run into the, sta- into the stadium. By faith, we run and do not grow weary. But this week we realize by faith we stand when we are pummeled. 
I mean, think back to that by faith chapter and the, the stories that the author references, as stories like Abraham and Moses. Abraham, who was called by God to go to a place that he had never seen before, but he, he followed God and that faith was counted as righteousness. And by faith, he trusted God to give him a son or a child because he had no son. Uh, and, and those things are confirmations of God's goodness to him. But then there's that last story where God calls him to go up the mountain with his son and a knife and prepare to sacrifice him. And by faith, Abraham climbed the mountain. But you are lying to me if you say that's easy. I think it would be just as easy for that writer to say, by faith and full of uncertainty, Abraham went up that mountain. Or the story of Moses, by faith, Moses leads the people out of Egypt into the promised land, or at least into the desert, and by faith, he conquered the gods of Egypt, and by faith, he crossed the Red Sea, and by faith, he led them into the desert, wandering as God taught them obedience. But every step of the way, Moses was confronted by people that criticized him and complained to him, and he had his own doubts and his feelings about the people and about God. By faith, Moses led the people through the Red Sea. But I think that author could have said, by faith and with doubt, Moses was faithful to God. Because I think some of those folks that are standing in the stadium cheering you on as you cross the finish line, some of them themselves, as they crossed the finish line, they did it with a limp. I think some of them crawled past Discipline, the training that we go through, the suffering that we experience is terrible at the time. But the promise of God, the promise of the one who led us through the valley of death, through to the empty tomb, to life, is that what feels like the seeds of suffering yields the fruit of righteousness. The promise of this text is that God is not going to spoil you which, frankly, if I'm being honest about what I want and what I feel, I would kind of like God to spoil me. Give me a great life with no problems. Give me a great family with no issues. Give me a great health with no problems. Give me everything that I want, God. Just spoil it. Give me everything I need. And if I'm being honest, in a lot of ways, I have been spoiled. The promise of this text is not that God won't spoil you, that you're not going to experience hard times and suffering in your life. But also the promise of this text is that God will not abandon you either. God loves you like a son and a daughter. God loves you so much that the formation of your heart and the shaping of your mind and your will matter too much for him to ignore. And so God is going to use those opportunities in your life to form you into a better image of his son Jesus. This text ends in such an unusual place. The author says, so let your injury not be put out of joint, but rather healed. I knew a kid here in Abilene when I was here before. And he, had, he got hit by a car and he injured his hip. And because of the circumstance of his family, for whatever reason, uh, they didn't have the time, the money, or the emotional bandwidth to get their child the physical therapy that they needed. 
And so by the time I knew their son, I didn't know their son for the, his injury had happened about four or five years uh, before I met him. By the time I met their son, he walked with a limp. He couldn't run as fast as the other kids. He did the best that he could, but he walked with a limp because he didn't have the physical therapy that would have healed him. And the saddest thing about it was that his injury, or at least the long-term effect of his injury, was entirely preventable. But no one had the discipline to put him into a hard space so that he could heal. I had a niece, I have a niece that when she was first born, uh, she experienced hip dysplasia, which basically means the, the ball in the socket of her hip didn't quite meet right. And, and for a, a baby, this is a completely healable, solvable problem. All you have to do is, is put your child in a soft cast while they sleep, not even all day long, but while they sleep, put them in that soft cast so that that ball and that joint can learn to work together. Unfortunately, it is a terrible experience for that baby. My niece hated that cast. She would scream and she would cry. She would yell and she would fuss every time she even saw it. Bedtime was a disaster for my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law. But now, my niece runs. She plays soccer and she's one of the fastest kids on the team. And the same is true. So let your injury not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The plan that God has for your life to bless you, the hope in the future, it's not going to take you in the place that you think it, you want it to go. God may not spoil you, but the promise of Scripture is God won't abandon you either. Sometimes by faith we run when we are tired, but other times our faith gives us the strength to stand when we are pummeled. So may you be full of God's grace and peace this week. Everyone around you is going to have so much anxiety. So may you be the grace of God to everyone around you and go with his spirit. Go in peace.